Do you know a woman who is driving positive change, growth, or innovation in her organization or community? The second annual Success Women of Influence Awards are underway. So whether a friend, a family member, or peer, give the recognition she deserves. The Success Women of Influence Awards honor, celebrate, and empower the extraordinary women whose contributions have impacted their industries and their communities, and the personal and professional lives of those in their world. Visit success.com slash W-O-I to nominate the women of influence in your life today. According to Vanguard's 2022 How America Saves report, women tend to trade 50% less than men, which means men are moving in and out of their positions at a 50% higher rate than women. And investing is one of those things where the more you tinker, like the greater the likelihood you're probably going to mess something up. Yeah. And so if you think about that, like I really, I think it kind of shows that like we should be, and you could say that definitively, and there's data and studies to back it up that when we're investing or trading, that we should be striving to invest more like women. Welcome to the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Julian. And today we're doing some myth busting around women and investing. But before we get started, I want to give a big shout out to a few of our listeners out there who have done us the favor of leaving us a five star rating and review. We just crossed over the 300 mark, which I'm very excited about. Hopefully yes. we can get to 400 by tomorrow. Yeah. Aggressive. And the reason we're not specific is because I think Apple changed something where you can just leave five stars without typing an actual review. Oh, cool. So we crossed the milestone because they didn't type a review, but they left the five stars. So, I'll take it. Right? Like so for those of you who have been hesitant to write a full sentence. Yeah, just, I can't quite figure out what I want yeah, to say. Scroll down to the bottom of the Apple Podcast app where the stars are. If they're empty, that means you haven't left us a review yet and just go on and hit that fifth star so we get, you know, a little, a little love. We would certainly appreciate it. All right. So myth busting women and investing. I think myth busting episodes are probably my favorite kind of episode. Really? Yeah. I don't know why. Have you ever watched the show Mythbusters? I have. And I have a hard time saying myth busting. I was about to, you know what? I was trying not to just go off and say, you might want to hold back I know. on the amount of times you say myth because I'm hearing a strong F in there. And, uh, you know. Uh, okay. I'm not going to say it anymore. However, I might have to, I might have to, but whatever. No, it's fine. I mean, you know. I think in preparing for this episode, I was reminded by this quote by Morgan Housel, who said, your personal experience with money make up probably Point zero 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 zero. It's a lot of zeros. Zero one percent of what's happened in the quote. world. Yeah. Okay. Your personal experiences with money make up a fraction of what's happened in the world, but maybe eighty percent of how you think the world works. And I just think that's true, especially for women and other marginalized identities who yeah. were systemically and in many cases legally left out of financial markets and the ability to acquire assets that grow in wealth until recently. And by recently, I mean like in the last 100 years, I think a lot of us take that personal experience, that limited experience and apply it to how the world of investing works. And that's just not the case. So I am super excited about starting this episode and, you know, uncovering some myths and busting them. I like that. I'm not laughing at the sad. I'm laughing at you, you, the way you're saying myth. That was a good one, by the way. But I will say this, uh, you know, kind of on a, I guess, darker note, like every time I hear stats like that, you know, I kind of cringe a little bit inside 
And it's, it's heartbreaking. And, and it really makes me kind of empathetic to a lot of the women, especially the older women that I meet, who are so, for lack of a better word, disconnected from their yeah. money compared to the younger women that we meet. And it makes sense when you think about the environment that they were in and the kinds of things that they used to have to deal with that unfortunately still kind of like impacts us today. Like they were literally systemically disconnected yeah. from engaging with their finances. And so it makes sense that as they get older, that, you know, they're going to continue to be that or they're going to continue to uh, display behaviors that look as if they are disconnected. And then even when you think about some of the younger women that we meet who are most likely raised or, you know, their parents were women like that, like many of them are carrying on some of these similar behaviors, which kind of makes sense. And the sad part, which means that, they'll likely succumb to or be exposed to some of the same issues that the previous generation uh, had to deal with. But you mentioned something, it kind of seems as if you were going into uh, almost like into a space where you're talking about like the mental aspect of it. And it, it brings me back to a conversation that I had with Someone who will go unmentioned. We just came back from one of the largest and one of our favorite conferences It's called FinCon. And I had a really great conversation with a fellow member of the community, not our community. This person has their own community, even larger than ours. And long story short, we were just kind of riffing on a lot of the kind of people that we meet and the questions that they share and how we use that as a bit of a gauge to kind of measure where people are in some way. And we kind of talked about that as well, like women, and it's not just women, but predominantly women that would ask these kinds of questions like, is it too late for me or does this work right. if you're single? And I had always thought about that from a standpoint of, oh, this person is inexperienced. And it really wasn't until recently that I started to also look at it from a lens of race and or women to say, oh, well, you, you know, it's hard to ignore this pattern because these kinds of questions more often than not do come from those kinds of groups. And so it, it was a heartbreaking realization. But again, as community leaders, and as people with the platform, we want to make sure that we talk about those things, confront them in as gentle, and I'm just going to go ahead and say might maybe even a little awkward, you know, as right. possible. But we're going to do our best to try to talk about these things, bust, bust <laughs> some myths, <laughs> and uh, hopefully we get a couple laughs along the way. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the historical nature, I mean, even up until 1974, which I'm sure there's somebody listening that was alive and, and working in 1974, yeah. but banks could refuse to give a credit card to a woman if she was unmarried. Yeah. And even if she was married, she needed her husband to co-sign. Yeah. So you're absolutely right that a lot of women who were raised by women who were working in that in that time That's the model. That's have an idea point. that they have to be attached to a man or that the math is going to somehow work differently for them if they decide to participate on their own. Yeah. It's really difficult to convince people who have been historically oppressed or, you know, are mistrusting of these systems that the stock market and equities don't carry the same baked in challenges as some of the other asset classes. But before we dive in, I really want to make sure that we're being inclusive. And so whenever I say women or Julian says women, we mean people who were either born a woman, were socialized as a woman, or currently identify as a woman. Yeah. So we're, we're covering the entire spectrum here. Yeah. So I want to jump right in because we're covering five and we don't have a ton of time. But the first myth is that women aren't confident investors. And this myth is really based in the assumption that confidence is measured by self-reported statements, which of course can be influenced by social and cultural norms. So women, when asked about their confidence, tend to be more modest and realistic about their financial skills. And in many cases, they're almost like self-depreciating. They'll oh, say yeah. things like, 
I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch between they and we. I am a woman. I identify as a woman. <laughs> but for the purposes of this talk, since I also identify as an investor, I might switch between the two. But women tend to be a little more self-depreciating and say things like, oh, I need to be doing more. I should be doing this. I need to be doing this. Oh, yeah. While men tend to be overconfident and optimistic. Well, you see a similar dynamic in the career space, right? So if we weren't talking about investing and we were talking about just advancing in the career and the whole narrative around leaning in and sort of being a, was it boss babe? Or, <laughs> yeah. Or is, did I clean it up unnecessarily? <laughs> no. Okay. There is boss babe. Right? There I, is. I know there's a B-I-T-C-H version. Well, there's that too. Okay. Yeah. I, I, it's a little sassier. <laughs> okay. Well, you know. Well, it's funny because, yeah, you're right. And actually the other day, this is a bit of a sidebar, I actually asked Twitter whether their US grandmother, too. Twitter X, whatever oh, you call okay. it, I, I, I tweeted, We're going to be forward thinking here. That's right. It's X now. All right. It's to be called X. I asked X, <laughs> people on X, whether their grandmother actually worked outside of the home. And I mm. already knew that our followers and audience, there skew a bit younger. And so I anticipated the answer a little bit, but I was still surprised that 80% of people who responded said yes. Hmm. And the comments were like full of people talking about the jobs that their grandmothers had over the span over the last hundred years. A lot hmm. of it was domestic work, but some of it wasn't. And a lot of them kind of approached their career in spurts where they may raise the babies for a little bit and then head into work later in life. And I thought it was interesting because it was a reminder that although women have been locked out of participating in financial products and services, they've actually been earning and handling money for a really long time. And I know in my family, my grandfather would come home and actually hand my grandma the check or the money, and she would be the one to manage the household bills. And even closer to home, my mom does the same thing. My dad was the breadwinner when he was working, but my mom handled all of the day-to-day logistics and bill paying. And so women are very comfortable and confident being the chief financial officer of the home. But when it comes to the investing and the outside part of it, we get a little shy and we aren't as vocally confident as men are. Yeah, my mom tells a very similar story. It's just the setting is in Texas, it's in Jamaica, but she's talking about her parents and she tells these stories of her father, my grandfather, going out to work, bringing the money home. Now, I also remember that even after my grandfather passed, but my grandmother had a little bit of an entrepreneurial spirit. I don't know if this was just because she wanted to have her own money, but we were one of the few people that had a freezer. So she used Mm -hmm. to sell ice. And I remember that as a kid, like people would come by and they would get these like little buckets of ice from my grandmother because, you know, we were, she had kids that worked in the U.S. and were able to get her a freezer. So, but to your point, like that same dynamic, right? Different culture, different time zone. Well, actually it's not a different time zone. Let me take that back. Different culture, for sure, but like different time, if you will. Yes. But that same model really kind of exists the same way. The man makes money, they bring it home to the woman, and it's then dispersed in the most efficient way possible. Now, having said that, I do think that we have to be careful about how we tell, retell, and, and interpret some of these stories. Because just because someone doesn't charge of something does not mean that they know what they're doing. Right. And that's not to knock the moms or the grandmothers out there, right? Like my grandmother definitely knew how to stretch a dollar. But if she were in charge of investing, I would imagine there might have been some challenges there because she did not have a form of education. She really was not granted a lot of those opportunities. And I think that works in every direction, right? So confidence or assumed responsibility of doing something does not 
equal competence. And research actually shows that women are very competent investors who outperform men on average. There was a study done by Fidelity and it showed that women outperform men by nearly half a percentage point, which may not seem like a lot, but like if you know anything about investing, it certainly is. But nearly half a percentage point over a 10-year period. And that's with a sample size. It was pretty large sample size of around 5 million Fidelity yeah, that's customers. a huge sample that, size. That, yeah, that's like, that's a pretty significant yeah, sample small size. City. So that I, I feel confident in that stat and sort of using it as a bit of a benchmark. But yeah, I thought that was really, really interesting. And to your point, that half a point may seem small, but when you spread it over decades, that's For compounding. Sure. For that's sure. a significant difference in the portfolio that you end up with. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the key factors in that stat or in that study was around trading, which is something that men typically do and women typically don't do or do not as often as men. And switching gears with a different company here, according to Vanguard's 2022 How America Saves report, women tend to trade 50% less than men, which means men are moving in and out of their positions at a 50% higher rate than women. And investing is one of those things where the more you tinker, like the greater the likelihood, you're probably going to mess something up. Yeah. And so if you think about that, like I really, I think it kind of shows that like we should be, and you can say that definitively, and there's data and studies to back it up that when we're investing or trading, that we should be striving to invest more like women. Yeah. If that was the case, like that 0.5%, right? That's, that's enough of an edge to be a winner. Yeah. to be consistent. And that's definitely something I think everyone should be learning from. Yes. And that's like a woman podcast over. Let's just give people their time back. <laughs> I, I, want, I want that t-shirt. <laughs> All right. So myth number two is that women don't invest because they don't know where to start. And like, yes. So we do get the question, where do I start often? Yeah, I was going to say, and I, mean, I can understand why that, where that myth comes from. Hold on. We get the question, where do I start often? And the starting point, let me answer it for anybody who might have that question. The starting point is pretty much the same for everybody. You want to define your financial goals. You want to assess your risk tolerance and the time horizon, how much time you have. Yeah. And then you want to choose an appropriate asset allocation strategy to help you get there. So it's three steps, financial goals, risk tolerance, and the right assets to help you reach your financial goals. Now, I'm sorry, but saying that this question is the reason why women don't invest is a cop out to me. Like women are not stupid or lazy. They're very smart and curious. And in my personal experience, I found that the problem is that once we know where to start, we don't have enough access to financial education or guidance that isn't trying to take advantage of our newness yeah. or dumb down the content or obscure all of the key information and just do it for us. So as a result, women tend to demonstrate less financial acumen yep. and have turned to creating their own sort of women's groups. And I have a couple of favorites that I mentioned in our, in our book, but one is on Facebook, Women's Personal Finance Club. And then we also have our own investing platforms like Elvis. So yep. you have these safe spaces where you can ask quote unquote dumb questions and not worry about someone taking advantage of your lack of knowledge. And it's interesting because Capital Group actually did a study on women's financial philosophies at the beginning of the pandemic and how many of us kind of marked the pandemic as this turning point or defining moment in our financial lives. Hmm. And in the survey, Capital Group found that who and where women turn to financial guidance is widely different across racial groups, and it's hinged on their existing networks and their resources. Hmm. And so they grouped people into two different categories. There were systems-connected women 
And then there were socially connected women. Systems connected women were actually more likely to turn to financial professionals and other kind of institutionalized guidance. And then socially connected women were actually turning to established social networks and online or public sources of knowledge. So you've got these two groups of women who are seeking knowledge from different spaces, depending on, again, their history and their experience with money. Yeah, I mean, I think that insight is, is I, I didn't know that going into it, but I think that insight is one of those things that led us to creating our first investing class, which is uh, something we're really excited about. It's called Making Money Grow, and it's going to be available on our website soon. I can't give you a specific date yet, but it will be available soon. But we started to notice those kinds of tendencies. And so when we were designing that class, we really wanted to make sure that we were meeting people kind of where they are and kind of serving them in a way that we had noticed that people really prefer to be served or sort of taught. And I think it's especially important today, again, going back to that insight, because for a couple of reasons, I think primarily because right now there's so much misinformation. I would argue there's more misinformation online than there's ever been. And so when you think about these people, predominantly women, who have this tendency to be, what do you call it? So socially connected. Socially women. connected, that sort of disproportionately puts them at risk, right? right. Like they're leaning on these online communities, but unfortunately there are some that are not necessarily... There's some bad actors. Yeah, there's some bad actors out there, some bad apples, if you will. On the other hand, I think traditional financial planning tools, uh, especially those that have excluded or taken advantage of women and people of color in marginalized communities, that also that also kind of plays a role in this, right? So I think you got the combination of these things that I think make it that much more important for why people, especially women, need to be learning more about investing teaching themselves to be more mindful investors. Our goal, the class was really to kind of empower people uh, to be better investors in all aspects. And so they can be better prepared for the future and just protect themselves from unnecessary losses or unethical practices. So I'm glad that you were able to kind of ground that approach, even though we didn't kind of design it with that in mind. Yeah. All right. So myth number two, that women don't invest because they don't know where to start is false. Yeah. Moving on. I wish I had a bust. Like <laughs> I know, that. right? I've got an ear horn thing that I can do, but, but <laughs> yeah, that's, that's another bust, bust, another myth busted. Yes. All right. Myth number three is that women don't invest because the stock market is too risky. And again, I think this one is a misinterpretation of what's going on. It's based on a stereotype. Women are not afraid of risk. They are aware of risk. There's a very big difference between mm. being risk averse and risk aware. Women understand that investing involves uncertainty and volatility, but they're also learning that investing is necessary to achieve the goals and beat inflation. And so being risk aware doesn't mean that we are afraid to invest in general or that we prefer to keep our money under a mattress somewhere. It just means that we're more prudent with our investments and we diversify our portfolios. We avoid trading, like you mentioned, and we kind of focus on long-term returns over short-term gains. Yeah. So because of all that, women may have a muted risk profile compared to a man when you look at the data overall, but that doesn't make us risk averse. That doesn't mean that we're not investing because we think that the stock market is too risky. Yeah. In fact, a woman named Barbara Stewart did a study in 2019 and gave women a broader selection of choices to identify behind. She asked them, are you a risk seeker, a risk taker, 
Are you risk aware or are you risk averse? And fewer than 10% of people identify, 10% of women identified as risk averse. So it's not a definition that we opt into, very similar to the way that we don't opt into being a confident investor. We also don't opt into being a risk averse investor. And so we have to start to expand the language and the way that we describe women's choices to be more inclusive of our investing style, because it's going to be the dominant style starting in 2030. Yeah, that's really, uh, that's an interesting one. Uh, You know, there there has been some research that shows that women are not inherently more risk averse, but there is a difference in how men and women kind of weigh probabilities. So the study revealed that women tend to be less sensitive to probability changes. They also tend to underestimate large probabilities of gains more strongly than men do. And I think what that basically means or what's that saying is according to the research, women are no less likely to avoid an investment opportunity based on the inherent risk. Now, as the levels of risk change, whether it's going up or down, that's where we start to see some slight differences. And in particular, if there's a potential for a huge upside in an investment opportunity, women tend to underestimate the likelihood right. of it happening, right? So I, I kind of think about it as you know, guys being much more willing to jump in and, and buy bottles at the bar to celebrate the probability of something. Women are much more like, oh, it's, it's, it's still on paper. Let's sort of wait for it to be <laughs> right. realized. Let's think about it, you know, which I think kind of seems to be the sensible thing to do. And it goes back to what I was saying. I wish more people invested like that. And I think it's because of a, a less experience, right? Your probability weighing, probability is not something that people can easily calculate in their heads. It's something that comes from a mix of math and a mix of experience. And I think men who have experienced the cycles of investing far longer have a a greater sensitivity to when things change or when there is that huge potential for an upside versus women, which is an important part of the study, which shows that these differences are particularly pronounced when the decisions are framed in investment terms. If they were framed differently, if we were talking about the probability to get hit by a car or the probability to fall out of an airplane, you might see more similarities, but with investing, because it's something we have less experience with, we have a different perception. Yeah. I, you know, this is a tough conversation. It is tough. I don't want to exacerbate a stereotype by like grounding something in research or finding, you know, or cherry picking a data point. And I'm also trying really hard, you know, I want to reflect back on some of the engagements and people that we've met. We've had you know, a huge opportunity to meet and speak with a lot of people. So I'm obviously speaking with that perspective in mind, but I don't want that to be, you know, like a different form or an accepted version of a stereotype. But I will say this, like, even when I think about like our dynamic, right? Like I do not believe that you or I are like more risk averse than the other. I think it's just sort of based on who you are, based on your upbringing. And mine is based on my upbringing, probably an entire set of a bunch of different factors. And so if there's anyone or anything to blame, I think it's just like your parents or something. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take a quick break right here. And uh, we'll be back with a little bit more about busting myths about women in investing. Are you ready to supercharge your life and get access to more opportunities than you've ever dreamed of? Then join me, James Whitaker, in the Win the Day Accelerator. Presented by Success, this entire eight-part program has been created to help you activate your winning life once and for all. You'll gain clarity on your goals and purpose. You'll learn how to quickly overcome challenges, and you'll get proven tips and frameworks that will deliver you big results fast in all areas of your life. 
So if you're ready to win, join me in the Win the Day Accelerator. To sign up, visit success.com slash WTD. We're back from break. And I think your last point is important because (laughs) about this being a difficult conversation. And part of what we're trying to do is complicate the narratives. The fact is that a lot of these myths are what stop women from investing or increasing their financial literacy because they are leaning on other people to validate this myth. They don't think that they're confident investors. They don't feel like they know what they're doing. And so they end up giving a lot of their returns and fees and even experience over their money. Exactly. And the the cycle just continues itself because now we don't have anything to pass on to our daughters, sons, friends, family, because we've never actually done it. And so part of that is... Yeah, sorry. I'm just thinking about this huge wealth transfer that's about to happen and like the problem that this sort of leads to. I don't know if we're going to get into that at all, but like it's, it's, it's a massive issue. Yeah, I meant to open it with the wealth transfer. The the short version is that by 2030, women are going to be the largest recipients of wealth in the form of inheritances and transfers from male wealth holders. Yeah. And we'll maybe we'll do a separate episode on this later on, but women are about to come into a lot of money. And so addressing the myths that surround us as investors is a really important topic. Yeah. All right. So let's continue with myth number four which is that women only invest in social causes or impact. And again, this is based on the stereotype that women are more altruistic and emotional than oh, men gosh, and so care, more, <laughs> care more about social and environmental impact of their investments. Yeah. And again, the only is the problem here, right? If this were correct, if women only did value-based investing, then that would be much, much bigger than it is, but yeah. it's it's not true. Now, it is true that there is a slim majority of women who have a preference for value-based investing. A CNBC article said that 52% of women, which is technically the majority, 52% of women would rather invest in companies that have a positive social or environmental impact compared to 44% of men. So there's a good chunk of men who also believe in value. This is not an inherently female trait. But even within the article, people frame it as this emotional decision. They add this emotional qualifier, which diminishes the reasons why women approach their portfolios in a more holistic and balanced way and care about both the financial and the non-financial aspects of their investments. And so the myth is around not only the only, but around the reasons why women prefer value-based investments. Yeah, we did an entire episode on ESG, which is environmental, social, and governance investments. That was episode 70. And we actually had a lesson in our class, Making Money Grow, about that, or basically dedicated to that subject. Because again, like I do know certainly a lot of people, and as I'm thinking, they are mostly women, uh, not to exacerbate the, the <laughs> myth, right? But you know, I think most of the women I talk, people I talk about in business in general are women. And most of my friends, quite honestly, are women. But it's the idea that there's oftentimes this ethical dilemma, right? They're thinking about all these other things. They recognize that there's a bit of a conflict between how they're investing and their values. And so that's something that they really, really want to be mindful of. Um, I think 30 years from now, it, it just won't be like, considered an emotional right. decision. I think it'll just be the way that it is. Like people factor that we're human beings, yeah. right? Like we're human beings. And an there. investment has non-financial impact. Money, money can be emotional, right? Like I don't, I, it's, it seems weird to even talk about it this way, but, you know, in that sense though, I, I think women are, you know, uh, 
early adopters, right? Like early, yeah. early to admit that actually, you know, and, and I'll say I'm guilty of that. I remember thinking that you needed to be, for lack of a better word, ruthless or emotionless in order to be a good investor. And I've come a long way just in the last 10 years in thinking about that, having dealt with my own kind of emotional struggles when it comes to this issue. I also think though that people kind of realize that you don't have to sacrifice performance for impact or, you know, like social values or anything like that. I think you can kind of find a balance between the two. And the good news is with the rise of ESG investing in recent years, people have really found and got creative uh, at figuring out that nice little balance. Now, I will say this, I, I and I don't have the article in front of me, but I do remember uh, reading that ESG investing is actually down like after these recent periods. But what was interesting, because I was looking, was that it had nothing to do with like women investing less or something like that, right? Like right. To, to go to the original point, it was more so a response to the political climate and the, the lack of people wanting to sort of shine the light on these kinds of issues and just trying to figure out other ways to express their allegiance with a particular cause or their belief system. Right. And so it, it's an interesting thing, but to your point, like ESG investing is a way for, people to kind of deal with those kinds of dilemmas. It's not something that only women do or even yeah. marginalized groups do. It's, it's something that anyone can do for any reason that they feel like they need to sort of separate the two or carve out something that is a bit more reflective of yeah. their values. And having a conscience or a vested interest in a social cause is not a reason to not invest at this point. Right. You have way more options than you did, I would say, 10 years ago. And they're picking up steam. So if you're interested in that, explore them. Go back and listen to episode 70 and then, you know, maybe take Make Your Money Grow and hit that module on impact investing. Yeah. Okay. So the last myth is women don't need to invest as much as men. And that's just a flat this out This is lie. a lie. That's yeah, not even a myth. Are, yeah. <laughs> this, this is just like locker room talk. <laughs> but it's it's based on the assumption that women, you know, will, will be taken care of or accounted for by their partner or their husband's investments. And I, I just think that that's flat out wrong and irresponsible, very outdated belief. I, I, it brings me back to the days of women like needing a signature to open bank accounts, right? Like yeah. it's just, it, it's, it's very, very silly. But again, like I kind of want to respect it. I, I hate to keep hedging because we do know women who think this way. If Absolutely. We're being honest, that's right? why I, that's and, why and I they brought it up. All these, these beliefs and, and they're training their daughters and, yes. you know, like, it, and their sons to kind of carry on these beliefs. And, um, you know, I think all of these things, these very outdated beliefs are kind of at conflict with like the bigger picture here, which is that like we are unfortunately in sort of fragile economic times, yes. some of us more so than others. And so like a lot of these beliefs really have to die off so that people can empower themselves, get the education that they need, get involved, protect themselves. Like it's bigger than just investments. It's really like the entire personal financial lives that people are kind of putting at risk because they're upholding some of these outdated beliefs. Absolutely. I think this stems from the fact that women earn less. And so there is an assumption that we have fewer financial needs. Yeah. And then there is the habit or the process of discounting our future self to do all the things to take care of our current self. And this is a dangerous myth because it basically undermines women's financial security. The reality is women have higher financial needs than men because we earn less, which means that we save less. We face more career interruptions for 
babies and caregiving, and then we live longer I, I on top of that. You live longer, exactly. <laughs> so, like, if, if ever there was a reason for why you needed to be more mindful of your money and your financial sort of planning, like it's, yes. it's for the fact that you are likely going to be here longer than the man or men in your life. Yes, that basically means we need to invest more aggressively and strategically than men do in order to overcome those challenges. Living that. longer is not a challenge, but <laughs> the rest of it is. And so, you know, we, we have some data to see what happens when we don't. You know, according to the National Institute on Retirement Security, women's retirement income is about 83% of men's. And women, this is a stat that blew my mind, Women were 80% more likely than men to face poverty over the age of 65. And then women between the ages of 75 wow. to 79 were three times more likely to fall below the poverty level as compared to their male counterparts. 80% more likely to face poverty. Yeah. That's mostly... I, I, yeah, I can't think I of... You can, you can do the entire podcast episode just on that stat right there. And that, that to me is, is strong enough of a, a rationale or reason why everyone, right? Again, like everyone needs to have a clearer picture and should not be sitting back and allowing their partner or anyone else, right? Like it's all good to be in a partnership, but like, it is. But you need to have a plan. To, everyone needs to be mindful of what's happening. And gosh, that's, yeah. that's crazy. Now the 80% stat is not because of investing savvy. It's mostly because of the income gap, which is a whole episode in and of itself, which I would love to geek out about. But for women that are age 65 and older, the data indicates that their typical income is 25% lower than men. And as men and women age, men's income advantage widens to 44% once they turn 80. And so men earn money longer and then they earn more money on top of that. And so that income gap is the thing that leads to missed payments and foreclosures and bankruptcy. And that is what sends women into poverty levels in addition to just you know, collecting a very paltry social security check from under earning during their career. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to be the dead horse, but I would add a couple more things that kind of make this uh, this this issue even even worse or more challenging. The first is just like the fragility of social security or the social security fund. And so based on recent reports, social security is slated to run out of its excess reserves by 2033. And so that safety net of America's retirement system is actually thinning more so than it is. Uh, And the second one is really around the coverage gap or like the lack of 401k access. And so when most people think about investing by default, they think about employer-sponsored plans like a 401k or 403b. Uh, But most people probably don't this, don't know this, but companies are not required, you know, legally to do this. And the percentage of companies that actually do offer these types of benefits to employees, that number really hasn't changed in around 40 years. So only half of workers uh, were covered by employee-sponsored plans 40 years ago. And that's about the same right now in 2023. So when we think about what we can do, there are a couple of things that come to mind. One... Yeah, let's end on a high note. Yeah, we've... we've, Yeah, enough scary stats. (laughs) We just finished Halloween. Let's (laughs) let's move into the fall. Couple couple of things that we can do about all of these things, all of these issues, all of these cliffs that we're falling off of. One is really just around building your financial confidence, right? I think that there's so much fear in the hearts and minds of all people, really, when they're thinking about how much more expensive life is going to be, that is further exacerbated when you don't have clarity or confidence in your ability to invest or manage your investment. So building that financial confidence, I think, is key. Second one is, I would say, just kind of getting out of your own head, right? Like expertise 
is not uh, a prerequisite here. You do not have to be an investing expert or a math genius in order to be a good investor. You need to be disciplined. You need to understand the basics, you know, and the fundamentals of investing, uh, but you do not need to be an expert. And so don't fall for all the things that you see on TV and certainly not on social media. And I think the third one is really around working on developing, for lack of a better description, like an ownership mindset. And when I say ownership mindset, I know that mindset, I know a lot of people initially think about like becoming an entrepreneur. That's not, that's not what I'm referring to. In fact, I think fewer, I don't really care if you become an entrepreneur. I just want you to be financially secure. And I think one of the easiest ways to develop a sense of ownership is really around investing, right? Like when you are an investor, you own shares of companies, publicly traded companies. And I think once you become really engaged with that, the way you see the world changes, right? You can be at home and look around at whatever it is, whether it's the television that you're watching, the program, the furniture in your home, like each of those things, those products and those services are likely owned by a publicly traded company. And so your relationship with that transaction or with those things changes. And I think most people are really just kind of living their lives as consumers of these products and services, but don't really understand or have any sense of connection to their sense of ownership to those things. And I think that just exacerbates the the disconnect going all the way back to what we were talking about at the top of this podcast. So I think in general, I think the goal is to kind of put in the work to go from this state of casual cluelessness, if you will. Maybe that's a nice way of saying ignorance. I, I don't want to offend anyone, yeah. but like, there's this casual sense of, I don't it's really like know. It's like a malaise. Yeah. Like, I think I that's really the word know. the New York Times used. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people think that to be engaged is to be a certain type Obsessed. of person. Yes. And I am not that person. I right. don't watch CNBC. I don't read these magazines. Therefore, I am not those person. We need to be looking at it more so from a hygiene standpoint. Like, I don't care who you are. Like, yeah. you, we all need to be, we all agree. They're brushing yeah. our teeth. It's a good thing. <laughs> you don't need to be a dentist in order to be good at brushing your teeth. So it's like transitioning from that sense of malaise to mindfulness. Yeah, I love that. I'm going to add a fourth thing that we can oh, do, okay. which is learn how to invest on your own. In yes. a world where, you know, only 50% of employers offer a employer-sponsored plan and there is a limit on those plans, I encourage everyone to learn how to invest on their own. And again, I don't want to leave on a glum note. So I want to share the momentum that we're making here. The percentage of women who invest outside of their retirement accounts grew from 44% to 67% between the years 2018 and 2021, according to Fidelity. So that's a lot of progress. And the CFA Institute actually predicts that by 2025, there won't be a meaningful gender gap in stock market participation in the US. Now, the key word there is participation and not portfolio balance, but that's still a big win. Just to start. Yeah. And I think learning to invest on your own is a way to make progress on both fronts, both in participation and portfolio balance. We are DIY investors. And honestly, it's never been easier to open an account on your own and put money in it. One, it's fun and it gives you this sense of control at a time where there's very little control to be had. And it also allows you to invest impulsively outside of the rhythm of a biweekly paycheck. So if you get one of those tiny rebate checks in the mail or a class action suit settlement for $1.15, you can go ahead and put that in the market. A lot of these accounts also don't have a minimum deposit that's required. So you can invest as little as a dollar. 
investing on your own is also less expensive because you save money on fees. And, you know, investing on your own is important because quite frankly, at the end of the day, no one is going to care about your money the way that you do. And there's definitely some learning involved. So you know, I'm excited because I'm a DIY investor and I love when other people join the team. Yeah. But that's why we created our first class, Making Money Grow. You know, we've shared our approach to investing on this podcast, on our blog, in our book, and a few other places. But this is really the first time that we've consolidated it and made it really easily digestible. So if you're interested in learning when the class is available or taking the class, head to richandregular.com slash mail, type in your email address and your first name, last name if you feel fancy, but first name is all we need. <laughs> and that will subscribe you to our mailing list where you will be one of the first to hear about the class and get a little discount. And we all love a little discount. I like that. I like that. I would love to see, uh, send me the link to that study. I, Cause I'd love to see an age breakdown on a lot of these new investors. I'm just curious if this is younger women. It is younger women. It's younger women. Okay, that would have, I that deleted was that guess. stat, but yes, it is younger women. I'd who like to are... see older women, but you know, We'll get, we'll get them. Younger Older women, women I'm coming for you. Talk to the, talk to your aunties. Next episode is for you. Let's do it. All right. Final thoughts. What you got for me? My final thought, we are in the middle of preparing for this talk for the Greater Washington Urban League. And one of our key tips for them is to believe the data. Yes. Today, we are up against a lot of challenges like record inflation, volatile financial markets, and the threat of automation for, you know, for AI, for people who are still employed. And so if you are a student of history, you know it's not the first time that America has experienced this collision of social, financial, political, and cultural challenges. Mm -hmm. But the good news, the great news, is that we now have enough information to incorporate history and data into our decision-making. Back when we didn't have, we just had the printing press, right? You had to wait for the information to get to you. Now with the internet, you, you, you know what it is. And so you've just heard the data around what's at risk if you don't pay yourself first and invest. So I encourage anyone who has been discouraged by stereotypes and societal expectations to step back and reevaluate. If you can look past the noise and use this data to prioritize your financial security, your future self is going to thank you. I love it. I had a final thought in mind, um, but yours made me think of something different. And it's really this idea that so many people believe that saving is something that they do, but investing is something that's done for them. And that's something that I think needs to change. And I think that idea is certainly, it kind of fits very, you know, neatly, if you will, into the mindset of a lot of women because they've been so disconnected from it. And I think that's something like if ever there was like a pillar of ignorance or a stereotype that I really wanted to topple for everyone, but specifically for women in other marginalized groups, it is that. And this, it, it kind of piggybacks into your point or your, your fourth point, I believe, around investing on your own, not because out, uh, or out of like this form of like rebellion or rejection of the entire system, if nothing else, just as a simple act of self-empowerment. So that would be uh, that'd be my final thought. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success. I think the biggest myth that we busted on this episode is that you don't have to type a review to leave a rating. So if you like what you heard, head on over to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating and review if you want it read on the air. We'll see you next week. <laughs>